0: Syncretistic Motive of Modern Culture, Part 2. We've seen that the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 was the first major display of the pagan syncretistic cultural motive in action. Let's look now at one of the major figures who was responsible for the spread of this worldview. In Genesis 10, we read about the descendants of Noah after the flood, about a descendant of Ham named Nimrod. Scripture says, Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth or Calah and Resen between Nineveh and Calah. That is the great city. Nimrod was the founder of the mightiest cities of the ancient world, and to later generations was a semi-divine hero who became synonymous with Marduk of the Babylonians, Osiris of the Egyptians, and Usher of the Assyrians, the state deity. He was clearly the founding father of pagan priest kingship and the state worship. He was adopted into the Western world pantheon initially as Ninus, by the Phoenicians as Adonis, by the Greeks as Dionysus, and by the Romans as Bacchus, and was identified with the constellation Orion. The ancient historian Bill Cooper argues that Nimrod was not only the most notorious man of the ancient world, but that he is the essential founder of paganism, syncretism, including the practice of magic arts, astrology, and human sacrifice. From Nimrod's historic axiological rebellion of Babel proceeded an ontological subversion of the whole notion of truth in the development and dissemination of occult and psychological religion. Man's idea, not revelation, asserted as the basis of truth. Now, just as there is a correspondence between the mythological characters of antiquity rooted in a historic original... A study of ancient cosmogony shows there is also remarkable similarity and correlation between the origin accounts of the ancient world and their deities, Genesis, of course, being the exception. Henry Morris actually observed, and I quote, This remarkable similarity of the cosmogonies of many different nations of antiquity, as well as their respective pantheons of gods and goddesses, is obviously more than coincidence the nations and their religious systems must have had a common origin," quote. So the ancient cosmogonies all begin with a universe already in existence in a formless, watery, empty state. Then the forces of nature, typically personified as gods and goddesses, act upon it. Given the global deluge and a cleansed earth emerging from the water, This phenomenon is not all that surprising. We know, and it is generally agreed by anthropologists, that all the nations and tribes do have a common origin. The Greeks actually acknowledged their religious philosophies were derived from the ancient Egyptians and Sumerians. The Greek and Roman pantheons have an essentially one-to-one correspondence with each other and also with the Babylonians and Egyptians. Amongst these gods, the supreme Babylonian god was Marduk, who we have seen was almost certainly Nimrod. Somehow, this rebel man is also placed at the foundation of pagan cosmogony, not just imperial history. It was the Enuma Elish myth, perhaps the oldest of the pagan myths, that was adapted by the later Greek philosophers for their own systems, by Hesiod and Thales and Anaximander. Thus, there in early Babylonia or Samaria, we trace back to the one world religious leader, Nimrod, the rebel, a world that also gave us the foundational myth that all the others of Rome, Greece and India have been constructed upon. It is this paganism that is again beginning to flourish in the West and its evil root is truly ancient. Babylon is striking back in our time. Man's rebellion therefore developed a new religious ontology that deteriorated from an original monotheism to pantheism and polytheism, and then into crude animism. Leaving ancient history for the classical world of the New Testament, amidst the religious syncretism of Athens, we find the apostle Paul confronting the Epicurean and Stoics with their pantheon of ancient gods. The Stoics, viewing all reality as pervaded by an intelligent divine force, were deeply involved in divination, a practice common throughout the Roman world, linked to these ancient astrological beliefs and tied to a pantheistic doctrine of fate. It is therefore no real surprise that as we turn back to paganism in our time, all these occult arts are again being practiced widely in the culture, and in interfaith and even ecumenical circles, prayers are being offered to our mother who art in heaven. Various occult practices and goddess worship are very much back with us. The collective rebellion of Nimrod at Babel thus leads to a pantheistic theological and philosophical vision that is able to embrace all the gods, man's psychological religion, of self-deification and embrace them into a social order where the world city has a priestly function for man, incorporating him into the divine whole. As a result, a new religious system of worship of creation developed, centering on man as a god or goddess. The animals, the stars and forces of nature are then also seen as aspects of the divine with celestial and demonic powers influencing and shaping the future. So from the cosmology of Babylon emerges the ontology of paganism as everything emerges from one primeval chaos in a great continuity of being. Religiously and philosophically, this connects man with the gods and enabled him to claim divine status or sanction for his politico-religious empire-building that requires an enforced unity. This was the philosophical atmosphere into which the early church was preaching the gospel. And it is again increasingly the atmosphere we face. It was an expression of the ancient lie, you will be as gods. And the political corollary of this ontological subversion was not toleration for Christians. Now Babylon was geographically what today we call Iraq. But Revelation identifies Babylon, the great whore, with ancient Babylon and Rome, but also with Tyre, Jerusalem, and every other nation and empire that dreams of dominion and religious unity apart from Christ. What Babylon depicts is an ideal of unity, peace, and brotherhood, which mimics the kingdom of God under a false messiah or deliverer Tempting man with a counterfeit, and it is therefore properly called a whore. Spiritual whoredom happens when people seek to find or know God by sidestepping the fact of sin, the righteousness of God and his law, and circumventing the necessary atonement of Christ at the cross. It is completely logical then that all syncretistic visions of religion seek to accommodate man's self-justifying idolatrous psychology into a broad definition of spirituality. They are mystery cults. Now, man's own route to God in this view is not a surrender before the living God, an entrance into the kingdom by repentance and faith, but instead is via a self-realization of the divine within. Here, I am the Logos, and so all my problems and difficulties, guilt and shame, are not due to sin, but are products of my bad environment, lack of psychological freedom, and the false exaltation of that man, Jesus Christ. As a result, the one thing that cannot be tolerated in this religio-political alliance is biblical faith. The ecumenical world of interfaith syncretism has no place for biblical Christianity and neither does the modern pluralistic state. It therefore becomes absolutely necessary for mystery cults to replace Christianity, to build religious and social unity in society. By identifying each person as an expression of the divine, the self is made the source of truth, and so to challenge someone's psychological reality with the gospel is a new kind of heresy – Tolerance and relativity are thus required for the political order. Following Nimrod, that ancient rebel, still unwittingly adored by the masses, autonomy means there is no right or wrong. Rebel man will express the God within through whatever spirituality and sexuality he desires and will pray to whatever God, spirit or goddess expresses his inner being. As the expert in pagan thought, uh, Dr. Peter Jones, has noted, and I, I quote, "...in this great expanse of energy, divinity, and truth, no religion can claim exclusive truth. Because Orthodox Christianity commits this unpardonable sin, it is the major obstacle to the religious and social harmony of the planet." Religions must blend into a global unified syncretism. The various creeds are interchangeable and spiritual experiences are in communion with the same occult reality. The Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago in 1993 was a pre-programmed happening of monistic spirituality. Conferees were to discover behind their external differences a shared human experience of the divine within. So there is and always has been an alliance in paganism between the mystery religion and political life. Roman syncretism was made possible by the universal spread of the Greek language and culture, the development of a large free trade market, a growing sense of unity for the human race, and a cultural openness to the spirituality of the East. The result was the emergence of a religious syncretism in Rome on a Babel-like scale. Though outwardly diverse in the melting pot of the Greco-Roman world, these cults came together in a synthesis, unified by the view that behind these pagan ideas was the same divine spirit. Dr. Jones has further noted that the Emperor Valentinian in AD 384 proposed a policy of religious tolerance. He said, We gaze at the same stars, the sky belongs to all, the same universe surrounds us. What difference does it make by whose wisdom someone seeks the truth? We cannot attain to so great a mystery by one road. Could have been written by any modern commentator. Politics and pagan spirituality are very much coming together again. Political power, pantheistic religion, occult spirituality, and various expressions of alternate sexuality merged in the Roman culture to make this pagan colossus seem essentially impregnable to the Christian message. But again, as Dr. Peter Jones correctly notes totalitarian political power joined with a syncretistic, all-tolerant world religion to insist on religious peace, end quote. But this peace was only possible if you conformed to the religio-political powers that ruled. Osiris and ISIS were welcome, but Jesus Christ the Lord was not. Holdouts were stamped as enemies of the state and the social order. So it's interesting to note that the Hebrew Commonwealth stood alone in the ancient world in divorcing priesthood and kinship in human authority. These were only to be united ultimately in Jesus Christ. His coming shattered the pagan view of priesthood because he alone is the emancipator and mediator between God and man. However, as First seen in Nimrod, the pagan king was viewed as divine and as a human god, the eternal and the temporal mingled in his office by the commingling of heavens and earth, all having emerged from primeval waters. In Rome, Julius Caesar was the democratic champion, assuming divinity, and was honored by the Greeks of Asia as the offspring of Mars and Venus, a savior for the human race. Octavian, likewise, claimed to be the son of God. Augustus Caesar made the same claim in the time of the early church. For these men, there was a continuity of all being, and deification was the height of that continuity. Roman kings typically represented the god Jupiter. The power of such political authority rested in their claim to be able to control, order and govern outcomes and the future. The priestly realm of political power was thus the kingdom of God on earth. In Israel, by contrast, God was king even when Israel introduced a monarchy ruling from his sanctuary. The Holy of Holies in the temple was his throne room and all the earth his dominion. The Christian gospel announces the arrival of this great king in history in the person of Christ who came preaching the kingdom of God and the apostles declared this message openly. The Roman world tried to meet the challenge of the claims of Christ and his church in several ways. Syncretism, extermination and a kind of denaturalization where they were ready to grant freedom to worship so long as the church recognized the right of the state to permit freedom. It was thus very much like the religious freedom offered in the modern West. Freedom to worship privately, but not freedom from the state. In our time, the dominant strategy of anti-Christianity is syncretism with denaturalization. This interfaith perspective enforced by the state is necessary to destroy uncompromising allegiance to the living God and his revealed word. Human autonomy therefore entails political totalitarianism because by it man creates a rival theological order in rebellion against God's rule. This result is inescapable where the faith of Nimrod prevails because it lacks a concept of transcendence that is only found in Trinitarian Christianity. If man's soul is deified as logos, totalitarianism is the result because power and authority become imminent, not transcendent concepts. Political liberalism without Christ is therefore a development of theological liberalism, which is merely the religion of Nimrod. As the West abandoned God, It transferred sovereignty from God to man and so democratized authority as the basis of all political life. In this view, truth and right are merely a product of the psychology of the people, not what God says they are. Liberty under God and his law is thus replaced by the liberty of nature and the development of man's rights to express total autonomy from God. Syncretism, of which theological liberalism is one recent instance, separates the state from any obligation to God's order, and in so doing reduces Christianity to little more than a private psychological preference to be expressed as social justice or humanitarianism. Consequently, God's moral law is repealed in terms of human rights, for Nimrod's order cannot allow the existence of a higher law to be a critique of the state's implicit claims to divinity. Syncretism is the democratization of religion and within it is man's assumption of divinity in the political order. We are currently experiencing the reality that freedom for the individual is only transitional in this revolution because the source of truth, law and authority is moving from God to the state as the imminent God, beyond which there can be no appeal. The rights of the collective become divine rights, and so politics becomes inescapably totalitarian. The revelation issued by this new God today is that the family and church are institutions that must be set aside, and enforced syncretism or egalitarianism are the weapons of choice. This disaster all stems from our first point, the myth of human autonomy. It's important as Christians to be reminded, however, that because there is no other God but the Lord, the pretensions of Babel were destroyed by God himself. Scripture reminds the covenant people that we win. Think of the prophet Isaiah, for of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And elsewhere, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is only one potentate whose name is above every name, to whom every knee will bend in heaven and earth, the true priest king, Jesus Christ, God's own son. We have seen that pagan worship began with a kingdom vision, with Babel, Cush, and Nimrod a false human divine king at its center, set in rebellion against God. This ancient conspiracy is only a satanic counterfeit of the real kingdom of God, which shall prevail. Scripture makes plain that Jesus Christ was sent as covenant head of a new race that would build a new world. In Adam, the original kingdom was lost through sin, but Christ The last Adam is building a kingdom that, as the uncut stone, shatters all the false syncretistic empires of men and spreads to fill the whole earth, A kingdom enduring forever. Christ's death and resurrection introduced a new world that brought to an end the false powers and claims of the old one. Certainly, the battles of history rage as everything is shaken but the war is already won. One crucial event that's often overlooked in this regard was the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This was not merely a religious event to give a spiritual experience to the disciples. It was a change in the history of the world as the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit upon the church to inaugurate a new covenant for the new creation. The immediate effect of this was the breaking of the curse of Babel. The curse placed on the false unity of Babel was confusion, so that they could not build, for they no longer understood each other. Amidst today's unifying pagan worldview, the irony is that men are everywhere at war and disunited. The syncretism of Satan has always failed. But at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, people from all over the known world of various languages all heard the gospel of the kingdom preached in their own language as the apostles spoke in other tongues. Here, the true principle of unity was set forth by the Spirit, the kingdom of God, under the reign of the true priest-king, Jesus Christ. This pouring out of the Spirit created a new race of people, a new family of God. Clearly, no one can enter this kingdom without being born again by the Spirit of God. Jesus said so. This fact rules out interfaith syncretism. To be part of this new world, the true unity of the covenant people, you must be born of the Spirit. The unity and peace that man craves with the divine and with all humanity because of his internal alienation from God, himself, and others can only be realized in a covenantal oneness with God and man by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In this, man no longer fears separateness or distinction as division, for his internal alienation is done away by the new birth. The new world is thus grounded in the work of the Trinity, as the Father sends the Son and together they send the Spirit, To bring us into covenantal not ontological oneness with god and his people the indwelling spirit unites us to god shedding his love abroad in our hearts creating a response of love in us christ's death and resurrection defeated our enemy and as he now reconciles all things to himself his kingdom age is come and he is building a new temple from his seat of authority at the right hand of God. The prince of this age is cast out and his rule is passing away for all power and authority in heaven and earth now belong to Christ, who sends us out to conquer in his name in light of his unambiguous claim to total kingship. Our gospel is a message that destroys the satanic false semblance of unity and offers instead the kingdom of God, a covenant community of grace enfolded in the loving embrace of the triune God. The intellectual absurdities, philosophical emptiness, spiritual bankruptcy, moral and sexual confusion of Babel produce only broken lives and cultures, whereas the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is this, that the true Christian must preach and live. Only in this glorious hope can we confront the broken Babel of our age and say with Paul, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men and his strength shall be shown complete and perfected in our weakness."